You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning again, and welcome to Every Nation Church GTA. Uh, it's my privilege to bring the word today, and we're continuing, actually closing out our series, looking at the uh, third section of the book of Acts. We're calling it season three. Now, if you're reading in your Bible, you, you won't see season one, season two, season three. Uh, that's totally artificial. We made that up. Um, but we've been taking this wonderful uh, book of the Bible that describes the functioning of the early Christians and breaking it up into uh, three chunks because there's just so much in it. And so this is actually our 10th sermon on what we're calling season three, uh, where we're looking into Paul's uh, third missionary journey. There's just so much in it. Um, we're at the beginning of summer. It's Canada Day uh, long weekend, and we hope that you're able to enjoy uh, getting outside. Hopefully it's not too smoky in your part uh, of Ontario or wherever you're watching from. There's forest fires here in Canada, and so we've been praying that everything will go well. Speaking of the beginning of summer, uh, I can remember as a boy... Um, Picking cherries. We had two cherry trees in our backyard, and it so happens that our new house actually has a cherry tree, and we actually got cherries this year off it. So we're really excited about that. And you'll say, What does that have to do with the sermon? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, just a little levity there. Um, so we're going to be looking into the 20th chapter of Acts now. Uh, when I researched a little bit about this uh, particular passage, uh, I looked at most pastors who are preaching Acts 20 actually preach three sermons because there's kind of three distinct parts. And so I just don't have the time and you want to get outside and enjoy the nice weather. And so you do not want to be here for the next hour and a half or so to hear three sermons on Acts chapter 20. But let me just share a couple things on the first two parts of Acts 20, and then we're going to dive into the final section of Acts 20. But uh, in the first part of uh, Acts 20, it gives some of the names of the people who were in Paul's uh, missionary band. These weren't the leaders and elders of the local churches, but these were some of the people that traveled with him. And it was just amazing just going down through the names of the different people. I'll just point out a couple of them. Uh, one of the guy's name is Aristocris, and we get the word uh, aristocrat from. And so he was basically a very wealthy guy, good guy to have on your team, uh, someone with means. But then there was another guy on his team named Secundus, and uh, we get our word second. Well, if you were a slave in the ancient world, if you were the first slave, you were Primus, and if you were the second slave, you were Secundus. And basically, you really didn't even have a name. You just kind of had this rank. But what's amazing about Paul's uh, team was that not only was there ethnic diversity, if you go back to the 13th chapter of Acts in Antioch and you see the people on being sent out from the church and the people gathered there from all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, uh, and it continued on in Paul's uh, 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 missionary journeys that he traveled with a diverse group of people. Um, then there's another section in Acts 20, which, well, it's sort of... 
comical except for a guy died but then he got raised to death uh, to the life again anyway um paul was in troas and on the first day of the week uh they were gathering and of course the first day of the week is sunday and back then sunday was the first day of the week and you are our sunday it was a work day and so when these people came together uh, to hear paul it would have been after work and it said that Paul prolonged his message. He had a long message, and it was, it, was, it was in a top floor, second story, or third story, I think. And there was this young guy named Eutychus, and he was sitting on the edge listening to Paul. And as Paul went on and on and on, it said he fell into deep sleep, fell out of the building, and they presumed dead. He was taken up dead. Paul went down and said, hey, don't worry. Uh, he grabbed him. He said his life is still in him, basically raised him from the dead went back upstairs, and then Paul just kept preaching uh, until midnight and beyond. So didn't dissuade him. But anyway, just lot, there's a lot more than just the situation of sleeping in church. I mean, I've seen pastors' titles on this section called Sleeping in Church. So hopefully you won't sleep uh, today. Um, but now we're coming into the third part, the part that we want to center in on uh, right now. And that was uh, Paul... Um, as he was giving his final address uh, to the leaders, to the elders of the Ephesian church. And so I've titled this sermon, Final Words, Paul's Address to the Leaders of the Church of Ephesus. So we're going to start in verse uh, 16 of Acts 20. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent from Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they had come to them, he said to them, pause. So uh, just to give you a background, I want to put up a map here to show exactly what part of Paul's journey we're talking about. So he was up in Troas and he was sailing down to Miletus. And it's interesting uh, that he said that he sailed past Ephesus. It's kind of interesting that he could have just went to Ephesus and called the elders together. Instead, he sailed right past Ephesus to Miletus. And it said, uh, actually here, why? Uh, it said that so he might not have to spend too much time there. Have you ever avoided a party because you just knew if you showed up, you'd be kind of locked into longer then you want to be there? Or is that just me? Uh, so, you know, there's certain things. Well, Paul actually was aware of that because he spent three years there. He knew a lot of people and he knew that if he stopped off there, he might not ever get out of there. So he uh, actually sailed right past it, uh, came down to Troas. And then it says he called for the elders of the church to come down to him. And you think, okay, well, they called the elders. Well, do you realize it's a 50 kilometer walk? Uh, to walk down. And what's amazing about that is, one, is just the commitment of those early believers uh, to the connection that Paul had with them, that he could literally call a leaders meeting and people would, you know, travel those uh, lengths just to come and, and, and hear what he had, uh, had to say. But obviously, the early church, they were very committed to the mission of Jesus. This is just one small example of how dedicated they were after they seen the glory of the Lord. They understood who Jesus was, and they were passionate about sharing the gospel and extending the church and planting churches all over, uh, all over the place. Um, 
and then when you when we talk about calling the leaders or the elders together, um, you have to switch sort of out of how we think of it today. Because today, uh, we have the opportunity to create very large church buildings or rent large buildings. And oftentimes, there's, you know, just a handful of elders for sometimes hundreds or even thousands of people. But not back then. For the first 300 years of the church, there were no church buildings. Um, people met in the homes. And so when we talk about the leaders of the church, these would have been all basically the home church leaders. Um, it, it might be something like uh, in today's you know, world, often churches are broken up into small groups or smaller groups where uh, the care and of, of the people in the church is not just done by one pastor, but they're done by several. Well, in the same way, that's exactly how it was uh, in the early church. And so Paul was calling uh, these leaders of all these home churches uh, together. So that's who he's uh, speaking to. It wasn't just a handful. In fact, normally when it's a smaller group of people, often they'll give the names. But he was there in Ephesus all these years and had a lot of uh, growth there. And so uh, it would have been a pretty good uh, sizable group, although it doesn't say exactly how many. So let's see what he uh, addressed uh, and said to these uh, to these leaders uh, in Acts uh, 20, starting in verse 18 now. He said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating that the he begins his address actually by just talking about himself. Look at these statements. You know how I lived among you. Or I came to you with all humility, tears, and trials. And I did not shrink from declaring to you anything uh, that was profitable. It's really important, I believe, to underscore that the greatest apostle, I believe, that ever lived, and uh, many th theologians would agree with that statement, uh, he s started his credibility with an appeal for not how good he could preach, but the way he lived. He said, you know how I lived among you? He even said, <laughs> had the audacity to say, I served with humility. Um, but he appealed. They, they knew him. They knew Paul, and they knew how he lived. It wasn't just how he preached, but how uh, he lived. I think today we have a gap in the amount we know and the amount we actually live. And part of it is just because information is so readily available. But I believe that it can be actually uh, quite a trap uh, for us. And we need to get back to a biblical definition, because I think a lot of times we think that because we know something in our in our in our heads and our minds that somehow we're actually doing it, but that's just not a biblical uh, definition. I like what Dallas uh, Willard said about belief. He said this: We don't believe something by merely saying we believe, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. Isn't that a great uh, quote? We've shared that before. And so it's not just about knowing things. It's about 
actually putting them into our lives. Here's what James 1.22 says. Do not deceive yourself by just listening to his word. Instead, put it into practice. Don't just um, listen to the word. Instead, uh, put it into practice. In our church, that's exactly why we have small groups, is because we want to take what we talk about on Sunday, and we say, how do we not just have another sermon, and then have another sermon, and then have another sermon, but how can we actually put what we're hearing uh, into practice Monday through Saturday? A good example of this was a while back, I preached a message about the need for our church, I believe, to have more practical ministry. As Jesus talked about not just preaching the gospel, but actually living lives that make an impact in the lives of others and, and with practical service, with actually loving people through the work of our hands. And in our small group notes, there was a question of, you know, what are you doing individually and what are we doing as a small group to actually show the love of Christ through practical ministry? And one of our small groups uh, really took that to heart and started discussing it and actually decided that they would uh, begin to collect money at their small group and that they would go down to uh, Adam House at the end of the year. It's a house for refugees when they first land in Toronto. It's a Christian ministry. And they took that money. It had amounted, I think, to up to $1,000, just putting something aside every week and being involved practically. That's an example of of taking the word and then putting it into practice, you know, in some practical way. And we want to somehow do more and more of that, don't we, uh, as believers. But the main way that I believe that we can close the gap between what we know and what we practice is through our interaction as Christians uh, together. I think that's what Paul was doing. He was actually living among them. He was preaching to them, absolutely. But he was also living among them, showing them practically how what he was talking about in his sermons and his teaching would be lived out in everyday, in everyday life. But there is a fear that if we actually do get close to one another, people will see the gaps in our Christian life. But that's the point, to be real about both our victories and our failures, to receive encouragement where we're getting it right and help for where we're getting it wrong. And I want to tell you a secret right now. Nobody is perfect, not even pastors. No one is. And so all of us, to close that gap between belief, we have to do what Paul did, live together spend time together outside of Sunday services where we're actually encouraging one another, where we're actually challenging one another and opening up our hearts to one another and say, I struggle with this area or that area and becoming uh, what Christ called the body of Christ, his, his body. I can remember how powerful this is when back when Sheila and I were first married, we had a home group, we called them back in Vancouver and we were inexperienced. Uh, we didn't know exactly what we were doing in many ways when you look back. But just inviting people into our home um, and studying the word together and hanging out. Uh, we would have food and different things and we would discuss God's word together. And we would get to know one another. And then all of a sudden, in that environment, 
things started to happen. In fact, some people who didn't really know the Lord started coming, and some of them got to know Jesus and became Christians through that. That group ended up growing that we couldn't just have one, and we ended up having to split it into two groups and and beyond. And it, it was pretty amazing. It was, it was really um, the first time I'd really seen God really use us in a tangible way in the lives of others. But it wasn't just what we were doing on Sunday. It was what we were doing at that time. It was Thursday nights. Um, let's continue on. Acts 20, uh, 22 now. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account of my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul began to share about his personal, what I would call follow the call story, that it says that uh, he was constrained uh, by the spirit. He said that if I only may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul was giving his example to these church leaders. Why? Not so that they could do his call, but they might understand and identify how the Spirit was restraining them or leading them. This last week, I re-listened to a wonderful podcast testimony of an of an engineer who thought he was going to serve the Lord on a mission field. That's what his, him and his young wife were thinking about. But then an opportunity came up for him to take over his father's small uh, business. And as he prayed about it, he really felt strong that the Holy Spirit said, I want you to take this little tiny business and I want you to use it for my glory to fund missions. And so him and his brother decided to uh, take up this small business. If they didn't take it, uh, the parents were just going to wind it down. And they decided that they would set a middle-class salary for their, their two families, and then everything they made on top of that would be given away for ministry. Well, that little engineering firm grew by about 25% a year for 25 years and eventually became worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And they gave away millions and millions and continued to live with cost of living increases, of course, for their family, but very modest uh, income. But it was one of those things where this guy and his brother were compelled or constrained by the spirit to do something with their life. Um, The reason I share that is just to ask you this question. How is the Holy Spirit constraining you? How is the Holy Spirit constraining you? That's my, that's my question uh, for all of us. It's not about this engineering guy or just Paul or each one of us have something that the Holy Spirit uh, will reveal to us that's part of our life calling and purpose. The only way we can allow the Holy Spirit to constrain and lead us, though, is when we surrender our lives fully to him. And that surrender can only happen when we see the beauty of the Lord, his love and costly sacrifice for us. You see, totally giving your life and future over to the Lord is not something you do to get God's love. It's in response to it. 
This is what Jesus said about the kingdom of God in Matthew 13. He said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so if we want to find that sense of, Lord, speak to me, what is this? I'll do anything you want me to do. You can't say that until you first found, sensed, uh, have grown in, in Christ's incredible love for you. I know that's how it was for me. I mean, I, when I was in university and thinking about my future, I mean, the l- very last thing I thought I would ever, 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 ever be as a pastor, I just thought it was just undesirable job. And it's interesting that after uh, I really understood the love of God for me and the exciting kingdom of God and potential in spreading his word and his kingdom, you know, across Canada and around the world. And God began to show me potential of living for him. All of a sudden that other stuff didn't seem so great anymore. And I knew that God was calling me to do this for my full-time career. Um, You know, Paul said this, but I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. You know, how do we get there? That's a pretty powerful statement. He said, look, I don't even count that, you know, that my life is value. It's because he saw the value of his life in Christ. There's other places where he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not any longer that I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. He said, my life is hidden with Christ in God. The reason why he could say that his old life was not that meaningful is because he had found something so much richer worth sacrificing for, worth all the things that he uh, went through. I like what C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And the way that we can do that is as our eyes get more on Jesus and less on ourselves. Let's continue. Paul now gives this final word uh, to the leaders. He said this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. One of the ways that you can know that you are growing as a believer in the Lord is that you find yourself not only watching out over your own life, but you have a growing concern for the lives of others. A growing concern for the lives of others. And part of my job as a pastor is to watch for this in people's lives and encourage it. When I see people beginning to actually look out for other believers and non-believers and wanting to make an impact with their life in another life, um, what does it mean to keep watch? So this is the main thing that Paul is saying is that keep watch over your life and the lives of others who the Holy Spirit, it's a work of the Spirit that this happens, especially when he asks you to serve in a larger capacity and watching over more people in a church context. But what does it mean to keep watch? You know, it's not that, it's not that complicated. First of all, keeping watch over yourself just means asking some questions about where you're at honestly with the Lord. You know, Lord... Where are we at? Am I loving you? Or am I walking with you? Where am I struggling? What am I doing to try to overcome my struggles? 
It's, it's, it's about, am I living, am I putting into practice the word of God? If it says to reach out to neighbors, am I reaching out to my neighbors? Um, all these, all these things. Uh, one of the things that I've just started, I was um, interested in a pastor author named Pete Scazzaro, and he talks about the great need in the church to not only think of in discipleship as a path with steps, but he talks about emotionally healthy spirituality and that we have a holistic growth in our life, in our emotions, in our thinking, in all dimensions of our life. And he was being interviewed and someone asked him, okay, if you want to begin to embark with a more contemplative life, uh, you know, reflecting, watching over your own soul, uh, where do you start? And Pete, Pete says, well, this has been known for thousands of years in Christendom. It starts by silence. And so I'm in a little experiment right now where when I wake up in the morning, I make a commitment not to grab my phone, not to put on any media or anything and take 30 minutes and just be quiet and just ask myself, do a kind of a soul check-in, you know, where I'm at. So it's going pretty good so far. Uh, ask me in about a year from now uh, whether, uh, whether I made headway or whether this helped uh, keep watch uh, over my own soul. But not only watching over your own souls, it also means watching over others. It means to observe them. Here's a simple example. You probably know this. But if someone's not attending small group or services, not that Christianity is just about going to small group and coming to Sunday church. We know that. But it's part of it. And you see that someone hasn't been around. You reach out to them and see how they're doing. That's called watching out for others. It's, it's being interested. You care that someone who knows where they're at spiritually or, or any other area of their life, maybe they're just struggling somehow and they haven't been around. So that's what, it's a very simple thing to watch out. Uh, another thing to watch out for others might be just to, when you're thinking about them, send them an encouraging text. Um, there was a young pastoral couple that sent Sheila and I a couple texts this week with a psalm that the Lord had impressed with them. And man, you talk about feeling like someone was watching over me. It's just having that uh, made my day, actually, to, to see that just simply reaching out to another uh, is a way that we can uh, um, watch over other people. I pray that we have more of this in our church. Okay. Finally, final section of this passage, Acts 20, 36. And when he had said these things, Paul, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would see his face, they'd not see his face again. And they accompanied him down to the ship. Uh, I've read this passage hundreds and hundreds of times over the years and have it, this passage has always struck me because just the raw emotion of it, uh, people weeping and kissing him and um, just the, the heartfeltness of the community of believers is just, is just so beautiful. They knew Paul had to go on for his call and he knew it would be not an easy end to his life. They knew it was his call, but they were sad. They were sad. And what that shows is the depth of relationships and the sense of belonging that they had built 
uh, through one another. You know, we have to work hard as a church to get to this level of belonging, to this level of closeness. Um, I know in our church, we've had to work through the opposite of closeness and belonging. We've had to work through conflict. And uh, as we've been faithful to work through conflict, then we've been able to get onto a sense of steadiness. And I believe that what God's doing right now in his church is he's bringing us into closeness. He's bringing us into a new depth of community, once one for one towards one another, and I believe it's going to be even a greater uh, testimony to the, those around us who they want that kind of community that a group of Christian believers can really have one with another and with uh, their God. I want to close you a uh, close with this thought: If you truly get close to God, you will also get close to one another. Not closeness merely as any friends who spend a lot of time together, perhaps years, but closeness in the spirit, loving and serving Jesus together and advancing uh, his kingdom. If we truly get close to God, you will get close to one another. In fact, there's a scripture that says, how can you say I'm close to God or I love God who is unseen when you don't love your brother who is seen? Uh, the greatest commandment that Jesus gave was a vertical and a horizontal. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, but also love your neighbor as yourself. And I pray that as we close out season three, that all of these messages, that we will be able to take them and we will be able to put them into practice uh, like never before. So let's be doers of the word. Let's be overseers of one another. And let's build for a new level of closeness as a community. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.